0: A pastor friend uh, recently asked me what I was planning to say to all of you in my last few sermons here at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church. She wondered if there were some essential things, some things I really wanted to or needed to say to you before I leave, a sort of swan song without the singing. Now is the time, she seemed to be saying. Now is the time to offer my last will and testament, my famous last words. Now is the time to take my last few swings see if I can hit the mark a few more times. I confess to her that I never really thought about it. Um, Some of that's denial, of course. As much as I remain convinced that God is calling me from here, I continue to most of the time act as though nothing has really changed. Now, I know it's not possible to live in denial, unless you're a crocodile. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) couldn't. Some things, you know, you just can't, what are you gonna do? Anyhow, the grief I feel, um, the grief I feel has a real-life cause, and it's way too big to be swept under some psychological carpet. Um, I'm keenly aware of my leaving, and keenly is the right word for it. There's a sharp edge to leaving, an edge that cuts not only ties but also hearts. And try as I might, I know my foot dragging cannot change what is unfolding, and truth be told, I don't want it to. Sad as I feel much of the time, I stand firmly on the invitation that God has given me. And so, before too long, we will begin our big adventure in Madison, Wisconsin, and it will be good because God will welcome us when we get there. Still, there's enough di- denial in me that it never occurred to me to think about what I want to say to you all before I leave. Um, I've never really felt the need to store up what I hear the Spirit saying in the scriptures. Um, I rarely felt as though certain things were off limits and have never felt that I needed to wait until I was on my way out the door before saying some things out loud. Now, to be fair, that's not um, what my friend was suggesting. She wasn't asking if I'd stored away all the things I couldn't or didn't say along the way, things I then needed to clear out of my sermonic closet before closing the door for the last time. Uh, No, she was asking if I had any final blessings to bestow. Did I have any last gifts, lasting gifts maybe, to pass along to you before I leave? Is there anything precious or important that I want to leave you with? Things that only I can say, things spoken in the voice of love and with all best wishes for you, my dear, dear sisters and brothers. The final X's and O's and little hearts added to the bottom of the long love letter. Well, I'm still not sure I have such a list. Um, Maybe it'll come to me. But at a minimum, my friend's question provoked me to think, not so much about the content of these last few sermons, more about their tone. I've never done this before, but I do know how I want to do it. With love, with generosity, with grace, with love. And Not just because I love you all, and I do, but more because love seems to me the proper way to end the journey. Love was, after all, where the journey began. So whatever last words may come to me over the next few weeks, know that they will be spoken in love, that they will be founded in love, and that they are an expression of love. Now, believe it or not, all of that does, I think, have some bearing on the story of Paul's speech on Mars, Hill, in Athens many centuries ago. Because what strikes me about this speech is the tone. Paul speaks, I think, and I think Peter captured it in his reading this morning. Paul speaks, I think, in the tone of Love. Now, let's just admit from the beginning that I'm speculating. Um, Luke's account does not reveal just how Paul was saying what he said. Maybe he was speaking in his 2 Corinthians voice, all put upon and sarcastic. Maybe he was speaking in his Galatians voice, all rabbinical and stern, and you ought to know better than to act that way. Luke doesn't say. In fact, we really don't even have Paul's entire speech recorded here. It's a summary statement. Paul likely went on and on for a lot longer developing his arguments, responding to challenges, making some of those poetic moves um, that he's capable of making. A summary is what we have. But from it, I think uh, we can detect the tone of love and grace. I hear the Paul of Philippians speaking. Now notice that just a few verses earlier, Luke tells us that Paul was distressed by the idols he saw wherever he turned. Athens was chock full of temples and statues and shrines and altars and offerings to a whole host of gods and goddesses. And Paul gets all wound up about it. So where does he go? What does he do? Well, he goes to the synagogues where, Luke says, he started to argue with the Jews and other devout persons. Then he went to the marketplace and he argued with anybody within earshot. He debated with philosophers, and some thought he was a fool, babbling at them like a baby. And others were intrigued by this new philosophy, this new religion, this weird new God that Paul was proclaiming. And Athenians, Luke tells us, were always on the lookout for the newest, latest worldview, the weirder the better. And what Paul was telling them was certainly weird. So they led Paul to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, the place where philosophers spread their good news and where they debated and so sharpened their rhetoric and their philosophies, and there Paul spoke. Okay, now, here's where I'm going to insist, how about that, insist that we hear the tone of love in what Paul says. I'm going to ask that we resist hearing sarcasm or aggression or manipulation in Paul's voice. Now, maybe they were there. Maybe we think they ought to be there. He's speaking to pagans, for heaven's sake, people who need to be called to repentance Scared straight, made to feel the weight of their sin, people entirely lost unless they hear and accept Paul's teaching. Extreme circumstances call for extreme measures, so channel your inner Pharisee, Paul. Tell these pagans where to get off and where they're headed. Their only hope is to believe what you tell them. Tell them that God's wrath is coming. Judgment day is near. The fires of hell are burning ever brighter in anticipation of being well-fed in the very near future. Give it to them, Paul. Show them who's boss. Mock their faith and their gods and their stupidity and their ignorance. Make them feel like the fools that they are. Make them shake in their boots. Make their bowels turn to water and make them tremble like Jonathan Edwards' fly caught in Satan's web. Shove them kicking and screaming into right belief. Then wipe the dust off your feet and move on. Whew. That was exhilarating. There's something seductive about being right and righteous all at the same time. It's a rush, uh, as in Limbaugh, making sinners quake, <laughs> pronouncing doom in the end of all things, predicting the future, and seeing only a few people saved. Proving that God is just and jealous and hard altogether. Never mind John three sixteen and seventeen. Only the chosen few are going to get out of this alive, and the rest will burn, baby burn. See what I mean? It's addictive, pronouncing damnation. And Paul was certainly no stranger to it, which is what makes this speech all the more startling and what makes it possible for me to hear only love and grace in Paul's voice. Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Where is the outrage? Where is the mockery? Where is the raving? For the life of me, I can't hear it. And Paul speaks gently, persuasively, but gently. He grants the Athenians their religious fervor. He honors their desire to worship. In the parlance of our times, Paul meets the Athenians where they are, and from there engages them in conversation. No antagonism, no prophetic denunciations, no, my God is stronger than your God's. He looks past the idols, it seems to me. He looks past the idols to the ones who worship them and says, I see your passion." I looked around and I paid attention and I noticed all the expressions of your faith and I have to say, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. The God who made the world and everything in it, who is Lord of heaven and earth, that God does not live in shrines made by human hands, that God is not served by human hands as though God needed anything since God gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. And here in in one fell swoop, Paul reveals a God who is bigger than anybody can imagine. A God beyond needing anything from us, including a place to live. A God who's not limited to human-made shrines. And do you suppose Paul speaks, too, of synagogues and churches and maybe even Herod's temple? A God who instead created us, made us, gave us life. We... Don't make God, God makes us. We don't give God life, God gives us life. And God gives life to all mortals. God gives breath and all things to human beings. All the shrines and all the world cannot comprehend this God. And Paul goes on describing how all of humanity is related, springing from one ancestor at God's hand. God created the nations and made places for them to live. God set the boundaries and allotted the amount of time given to human life. God created the desire within human beings to search for God, to grope for God, to find God. And here's the greatest mystery of all. God is not far from us. Again, Paul honors the religious impulse in Athens and makes clear that that impulse is God-driven, God-ordained, God-born and so is not satisfied until it ends in the God who created that hunger in the first place. Then Paul quotes a Greek poet or two. In God we live and move and have our being, for we too are God's offspring. Now notice that Paul does not distinguish here between the chosen ones and everybody else, the believers and the pagans, the classic us and them strategy of popular Christian witness. No. In God we all, everybody live and move and have our being whether we know it or not whether we believe it or not whether we like it or not we all live and move and have our being in god we are all god's offspring no wonder then that we're all looking for the same god whether we know it or not now only now does paul begin to take a bit of a poke at Athenian religious practice. Only now comes the call to repentance. Only now comes the word of impending judgment. Only now comes the introduction of the risen Christ, the Christ whose resurrection assures all people of God's saving intentions. Only after gracefully honoring the Athenians' religious impulse, and only after revealing a God who's bigger than any human imagining, And only after making clear that every human being seeks the same God and after revealing that the search for God is born in us at God's own hand and after making clear that all of humanity comes from God and lives by God's mercy and generosity and that we are all God's children and that God cannot be adequately captured in gold or silver or stone or shrine or temple or church, only after all of that does Paul tell the Athenians what's at stake in all of this. Beginning with love, Paul can end with a call to repentance, a call that would have been quickly dismissed as ignorant superstition had Paul started out by giving the Athenians what for. Now, despite what I said earlier about Paul not being manipulative, we could see this speech as a finely crafted work of persuasion. The setup at the beginning, then the proof texting followed by the altar call. And maybe that's what this is, maybe that's okay. After all, we do know what is at stake here, but For this morning, at least, I will stubbornly refuse to call Paul's speech a manipulation or a strategy to get the Athenians to make the right choice. I resist calling it a brilliant marketing tactic. I could be wrong. It wouldn't be the first time. I could be wrong. But there's something in me today that, that prefers to see Paul as speaking without guile, even righteous guile, but from a place of love. And grace. I prefer to believe that while Paul sincerely desired the Athenians to hear him and so broaden their understanding about the source of their religious enthusiasm and even come to follow Jesus as Lord, that he was only speaking the truth in love. I'd like to think that what we see modeled here is not an evangelistic strategy or a marketing tool, but is instead an example of simply admitting that we human beings are all in the exact same boat, dependent on God for the exact same things seeking the exact same God and all of us God's offspring, God's children, beloved, inspired, and gifted with life, and a deep desire to locate the one who gave us that life. Now, maybe the distinction I'm trying to make is too fine to matter, but it doesn't seem that way to me, because I think what motivates our speech is as important as what we say. I believe that the tone with which we speak reveals um, more about us than, than the content of our speech. That how we say something makes all the difference. That if we set out to manipulate or coerce or strong arm or arm twist or coerce, even if the end we seek is salvation, I think we will have failed. That the true test of our witness is not how right we are theologically or dogmatically, but how well we love the one we're speaking to. I think that's what, Paul, what characterizes Paul's speech to the Athenians. Under all the clarity of thought and the rightness of doctrine, conviction of belief, there's Paul's love for the Athenians, a love revealed to us in the way Paul speaks, not as to a group of enemies or opponents or even sinners headed for hell, but as people who, like Paul, are lost and seeking a way home to God, offspring of God, and so sisters and brothers whose lives take place under God's loving regard, love that calls them to turn around, to repent, to turn around and follow after the risen one, to turn around, but not in fear of the hellfire ahead, but because of the love of God calling them to God's own self. A word spoken in love, and so a word of love, capable of transforming even the most wayward one. A message of salvation spoken in love, with love coming first, love setting the course, love paving the way, and so bearing witness to the truth of what Paul is saying. Now, this is not what I was taught growing up, but it seems to me so clear now. Theology is important, of course. I'm a seminary graduate. I'm not afraid to admit it. Doctrine is useful. I know that's true. Confessions of faith are even perhaps essential in assisting communities to speak a common language, and establish a common life together. I don't mean to diminish or devalue what we believe and what we say and what we claim about God's work in the world. I'm a Mennonite and so confess some very specific things about God, things that distinguish me from other Christians, things that I care very much about and that shape the way I live. And I'm perfectly willing to argue the case that my Mennonite way of living and talking and thinking is the most faithful to the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Theology, doctrine, confessions of faith are important. The content of our speech matters. What we believe matters. If we don't know what we believe, how can we know how to behave? But I still believe that what matters even more is how we believe, how we speak, how we bear witness, how we live, how we love. That, to put it bluntly, in the words of Keith Regeer from a Sunday School class earlier this year, to put it bluntly, love trumps doctrine, love trumps theology. As Paul said in another context, though I speak with the tongues of human beings and of angels, and have not love, I'm just another noisemaker. If I know everything and speak only the truth, if I have not love, I'm just another loudmouth know-it-all. Love is what transforms. Love is what invites. Love is what welcomes. Love is what calls forth the best from us. Love is what nudges us toward God. At the end of the day, at the end of all time, what will abide is faith, hope, and love. And the greatest is love see i think that how we speak and how we behave and how we treat each other and how we treat strangers reveals the truth about what we believe that our theology is best made known in how well we get along with others that our doctrine is best expressed in how we behave toward those who think we're wrong that the best confession of faith we can ever make is in the way we love all of god's offspring that we can have all our i's dotted and t's crossed theologically And still not be transformed to the image of Christ. That it is our love for God and God's love for us and our love for others and God's love for others that will finally bring about the reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. So maybe there is a word I do want to leave with you before I go. Perhaps it's an unsettling word um, as it seems to oppose the kind of boundary setting and line drawing and truth establishing that we Christians hold so dear and have come to believe are so important. A prophetic word, maybe, as it challenges us to examine our hearts as we bear witness to what God has done for us in Christ, and to avoid the temptation to see the gospel as a product to be sold or a weapon for wounding and condemning our enemies. A pastoral word, I hope, as it calls us all toward what I believe is God's own heart, a love that guides our thoughts and our behavior and especially our speech, a love that leads us to welcome and not condemn, to open our hands instead of making fists, to honor the desire in every human being to seek the God who is already near to all of us and to understand ourselves as sisters and brothers with a common ancestor, people whose life and breath come from God and whose salvation is already being accomplished in Jesus Christ. I cannot know what the future holds for this congregation. Nobody can. But I do know this, so long as everything you do is guided by love, you will continue to be a source of light and hope and peace in the world. So long as you continue to be guided by the impulse to be generous and to welcome, you will continue to be a source of light and hope and peace in the world. So long as you strive to stay true to what you believe, but are ready to place even that certainty under the priority of love, you will continue to be a source of light and hope and peace in the world. So long as you remember that everything you are and everything you have and everything you will become is a gift from God and all of it to be shared in love freely and with abandon, you will continue to be a source of light and hope and peace in the world. As God's offspring and with God's help, may you find the way to ever greater faithfulness and love. May God make it so. Amen.